Hello and welcome to the Bible with Me podcast from Precept UK. We are a Christian charity based in Salisbury that equips people to know God deeply so they can live differently, using a wide range of Bible study resources for all ages and levels of understanding. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the ministry, and we would love to encourage you to seek the truth of God's Word for yourself using one of our inductive study books, available at precept.org.uk. Now without further ado, here's Nigel with the latest episode of the Bible with Me podcast. Well, I'm really delighted to be um, welcoming uh, Patrick Regan to the podcast today. Uh, Patrick is the CEO and co-founder of Kintsugi Hope, which came about following a series of personal trials and ill health. Uh, Prior to that, Patrick led an urban youth charity uh, called XLP, which he founded in 1996. Uh, He's traveled to many countries, over 40 countries, working with and on behalf of the poorest communities, and is a regular contributor on radio and television on issues of justice and also well-being. He has received the Mayor of London Peace Award and was also awarded an OBE from Her Majesty the Queen for services to young people. Uh, Patrick's an honorary fellow of the South Bank University for his contribution towards justice and well-being and is also patron of Welcome Churches, whose vision is to is for every refugee in the UK to be welcomed by their local church. Uh, he's married and he is the author of a number of books. Uh, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Patrick, how did you come to be a disciple of Jesus and and why why do you follow him? Yeah, I think I, I was brought up in a Christian home. And uh, so from a very young age, I remember going to church sometimes like three times on a Sunday and uh and so um i guess a lot of people had had that experience but um i don't think that diminishes it i you know my faith was very real as a young person and uh, my parents set a good example of uh, what it was like to follow jesus but i i think it was when i was 16 i went and did a mission to um in london to a place called carbel city which um was a time that really changed my life and my perspective and you know, there's a verse, isn't there, in the in the book of James, James two seventeen, that says, "Faith without action is dead." And I realised that actually, when you when you put your faith into action, that's when it comes alive. It's almost it takes on that sense of life. And uh, and I feel like for me is um, I've worked with so many broken people over well, I don't know so many years, and uh, you know, from everything from abuse to domestic violence to to um, mums that have lost kids to knife crime, to just some of the most horrendous situations of injustice. And and what I've noticed, whatever country in the world I've been in, is that the only thing that can transform someone's heart is, is the love of God. And there's so much good stuff that we can do. There's so many other charities that do amazing stuff, but there is something um, transformational that happens when you realize that you're made in the image of God and you're loved and you're cared for and actually you're loved so much that actually that someone was willing to die for you and uh, and I feel like that that's got to be the the um the distinctive you know and, and we're all built with that desire to be loved you know I everyone talks about you know how bad the world is I, I you know I think people are really good at heart they're kind they're generous they they, they are compassionate they you know um and they want to do the right thing that has to come from somewhere apart from a load of random atoms floating around somewhere um I think it comes from the heart of God yeah absolutely absolutely and so and following Jesus um as a as a as a as a as a person why why that why him yeah, I think that, um, to be honest, sometimes I've struggled with religion, and but I have been so attracted to Jesus. And, uh, and like, there was a book that Philip Yancey wrote years ago called The Jesus I Never Knew, um, which was a brilliant book, which it describes, you know, the historical Jesus, but also Jesus being very much alive. And just the fact that wherever he went... Um, that he cared for the marginalized and the broken and, and, you know, he stood against injustice and the sense of there was something so attractive about him. And, you know, I often say that Jesus was called friend of sinners. Um, sometimes I feel like in the church, we become friend of meetings, you know, um, for God so loved the world. He sent a committee 
And it was almost there was something so attractive that actually people who felt broken, whose self-esteem was crushed, who were despised by everyone that had no rights at all. In Jesus, they found someone they could relate to, which is yeah. incredible. Yeah. And uh, and so that he that he inspires me and uh, is the reason I do what I do. That's brilliant. I think I think when you said that, um, it's interesting, you said, you know, I, I have a problem with uh, with religion or religious. I, I was thinking, well, Jesus did as well, actually. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, you know, he, he, I've said often on this podcast that actually Jesus reserves his harshest comments for the religious leaders yeah. of the day, you know. Um, yeah. Now, um, you grew up and, and uh, educated in Essex. Um, what are your memories of your upbringing and your schooling? Um, yeah, I was um, I wasn't particularly academic at school and uh, I used to the club. Get... Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to get, um, you know, a lot of the kids gave me a hard time for being a Christian and stuff. And uh, but I remember when I was 15, I don't know why I did it. Um, well, hopefully it was something to do with God. I t- decided to book a 58 seater coach and invite all the people that were taking the mickey out of me for being a Christian to a Christian concert. And uh, pretty much like I packed the coach out because basically everyone was um, coming so they could, um, you know, give me a hard time at the end, I think. And, uh, and and my parents didn't quite know what to do because they were like, I'm really encouraged that you're, you know, trying to yeah. reach your friends, but not so encouraged when they got the bill for like £600 or something. <laughs> um, going, you better feel this thing, you know. And uh, and I remember that was an amazing evening, actually. And I really felt God met some of my friends in such a powerful way. Um, so, yeah, so th- there was there was a sense of that. Um, when I went to London, I had this experience at Carver City. I, I came back to my church and I was like, I really feel like we need to do a lot more to live out our faith. We need to tell more people about the love of God. And he was like, um, my pastor was like, that's all right. Um, you do it. You lead it. <laughs> you lead the whole of the evangelism in this church. And I remember looking at him thinking, I'm 16. Um, you know, does this, is this guy, you know, when you're 16, everyone's old, right? They're like, like he's an old man. He don't fancy it anymore. And uh, so, um, so I did. I became the leader of evangelism in the church. And we started a non-alcoholic cocktail bar. Um, we started visiting old people's homes. I basically try to work out where are people um, and how can I love them and serve them. So at Christmas, we used to go down the hospital singing carols. Um, we did quite a lot of outreach into the town centre. And uh, so, yeah, faith was always about how do we put this into action? How do we communicate and demonstrate the love of God? I mean, that is remarkable what you're sharing there um, for such a young guy to have something of God's heart and to be prepared to step forward and do what you do, you know, pack out a coach age 15. Uh, and then, and then the pastor says, right, you're, you're, you're Mr. Evangelist. I mean, that is, that is pretty remarkable. I would say. Um, now I understand you, you went on a youth project at 16 and met with some homeless people. And, and that was a significant time as well. Um, what, what happened there? I went to Kabul City and at the time, Kabul City was underneath Waterloo Bridge and uh, by the South Bank. So it was a bizarre thing, really, because you'd have to walk through literally hundreds and hundreds of homeless people that built these huge cardboard boxes um, to live in. And uh, and and obviously the people that go to South Bank were theatre goes. So it was like for me, it was the real contrast between the rich and the poor. And I remember there was one particular evening where we all sat round in a circle and some guy had begged enough money for to buy a hamburger and they were passing it around the circle and everyone was taking a bite out of it. And then they handed it to me as if I, you know, do you want some? And they're sort of like, I just didn't understand. I was like, I feel like I have everything, but you're still willing to share with me. And and I remember looking up on the wall and on the wall of Carver City, someone had written in massive red letters they'd got red paint and they'd written the words welcome to reality and and I remember going home that night and just praying a prayer that changed my life and it was like God I want to see the world the way that you see it I want you to break my heart for the things that break yours I want to be able to um, dedicate my life I guess to the broken and the marginalized and the put down and the last the lost and the least 
and and I feel like you know so often we treat mission as like we need to go and rescue people but I realize there is no them and us there's just us we're all human beings made in the image of God and the way I take it is I want to draw out the image of God in you and mm-hmm. you know and, and learn from you those homeless people got stuff to teach me about resilience about caring for people about generosity sharing their last hamburger um with a rich white guy um you know and and so I feel like if you go in with an attitude of humility and listening and serving and uh, I feel like that changes the way that people relate to you and I think that was a pivotal moment for me that, that is brilliant and, and and that's that's what Jesus did didn't he yeah right. what you've just described there that's exactly what Jesus did I mean this this led you to set up um XLP yeah. in the mid 90s um first of all what does XLP stand for and how and and I guess you shared sort of some of the reasons why you started this work. Um, so the sort of genesis of XLP to start with. And then I want to ask you about uh, separately, uh, you know, how God led you over the years with the charity. So so how did it start? Uh, and, you know, um, why did you start it? Yeah, so I guess um, when I was 18, I, I moved to London as soon as I could because my heart was so broken for London. I did and I did a gap year there and while I was doing a gap year there was a stabbing in our local school in the playground and the school phoned the church up to see if we could help get the moral fibre of their school up and the local vicar didn't really fancy it going there because you know how rough the school was and so I got sent as the local youth worker um, to see what I could do to help and I arrived in a school and, you know, um, this one particular school had 65 mother tongue languages. So it wasn't that the kids were thick or stupid. They just didn't understand what was being taught. And uh, so we started helping with reading and literacy. And uh, we started doing assembly, started doing lunch clubs. And uh, and I think God just broke my heart for the situations that are in. You know, I met kids who were wearing bulletproof vests underneath their school uniform and being scared of being stabbed and this one guy I remember, um, he, who this guy was wearing a bulletproof vest, and he got stabbed at half past three in the afternoon in the neck by another kid in the school. Um, I remember meeting this fourteen-year-old girl who said to me, "Her biggest aim in life was to be a single mum because she wanted a baby to love, the baby to love her, and she didn't know what any bloke getting in the way." So basically, I found seventeen people to give me twenty-five pound a month, and from that, I started the charity XLP. And XLP stood for wanting the young people to excel in every area of their lives and emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. And um, and it started from a very tiny project. Um, today, it's huge, I think, um, working, uh, working with thousands of young people every week um, on estates and schools and arts on employment projects, mentoring projects um in all sorts of spheres so how, how how did how did the lord lead you as you were doing that i mean was he, he was putting people across your path you were able to share your heart with others and god just brought people how, how did it develop over the years what did I god do it, yeah i think everything develops through relationship and understanding and uh, and so we always took a relationship approach so you know our approach to the school is you know, as local church, we believe in serving our local community. So what can we do to serve? What can we do to help? I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can march into these communities and go, I'm just here to tell you about Jesus. And they're like, well, I'm hurting. Um, and so actually doing practical things to really communicate that love, you know, like reading, like literacy, like getting alongside some of the families on the estates um, was really important. And then through relationship, I think, you know, things just started to grow and, and one school then was like, can you come into our school? And and then I think the other thing that we really tried is, you know, there's a verse in Chronicles that says the men of Issachar understood the times and knew yep. what Israel should do. Yep. And I think I'm constantly asking myself, you know, what what are what are the issues? You know, understanding always challenges your perspective. And sometimes we're quick to talk and slow to understand. So so one of the things in London, for instance, was the postcode wars that if you live in a certain area um like se15 was peckham where i lived and you know the kids there were often at war with sw9 which was brixton and you know gangs and fights and so you would never get a big youth center 
um, anywhere and get these kids in the same place, it would be like, you know, it would be dangerous, very dangerous. And you know, people have lost their lives over things like that. So what we did is we took um, these double-decker buses onto um, different estates um, across London. And uh, because basically what we wanted to do is provide mobile youth centres because um, the kids wouldn't come to some sort of central uh, youth club and that sort of stuff. So it really was just coming out of trying to understand the issues of our time and being able to respond to that. And and I, and I think that's the way God works often, that, you know, if you ask the right questions and listen um, to the needs of the community, then you can respond in the right way. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of the impact this is having on young lives? Uh, and Ali, is it just based in London or is it wider? Yeah, it's based in London predominantly. Um, it sort of grew across London. So we started in Peckham, where God lives, and uh, <laughs> it grew um, across South, East, North London. And then we started to train other churches up to run mentoring programs uh, in their communities across the UK. And uh, But I, I left there three years ago now, so it's, it's changed a little bit, yeah. um, but still doing some amazing work. And uh, I feel like relationship nurtures the belief that change is possible. And so I always used to say to people that you need to build relationship. I remember there was a situation where um, we were very concerned about some of the young ladies we were working with who had been involved in gangs and uh, and being sexually abused. And, and, and the challenge for these ladies and beautiful girls, actually, was they were both victims and perpetrators of crime. And because uh, it is a really tough world to be in. And so I remember uh, we got a meeting with the local authority and Sapphire, which is the department in the police that deals with sexual violence and a trilogy, which is the department in the police that deals with how to reach the hardest to reach young people. Uh, we got clinical psychologists in there, crime intervention people in there. And it was really interesting. Um, they basically said to us, well, you're the only ones that can reach the invisible people. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And then the police were like, well, until they commit a crime, we can't do anything. And then the clinical psychologist was like, well, until I get a referral from a GP, I can't do anything. But you guys live in the communities that you serve. And so you get to know people and because you're part of the community. And then they said something fascinating was they said, you know, there's three things to see in lives transformed that you probably need to understand. Number one is they need to trust you. Um, everyone mistrusts everyone today. Everyone mistrusts institutions. You know, ask the average person what do they think of politicians, what do they think of the police, what do they think of this. You know, there's this mistrust generally around. Um, you've got to build trust, and sometimes that can take years. And yeah. uh, secondly, you've got to uh, install a belief that change is possible. That if you embrace hope, if you don't embrace hope, you will embrace things that will eventually destroy you. If you live with no hope. And then thirdly, um, you need to challenge people to change, change their attitude, change their behaviour. So I'm sort of sitting there as a Christian thinking, so basically what you're telling me is transformation is basically summed up in trust, belief, change. <laughs> I was like, I've heard that before somewhere. And, uh, you know, that really is the heart of the gospel. We, we trust in a loving God and we believe in him and we have hope. And and then that through that relationship we're able to change. And uh, wow. so I thought that was fascinating. And this was this was coming from from non Christian people. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Um, now, um, God has um, led you to speak pretty widely on the issues that are close to your heart. Um, and, and strategically, really, in our nation uh, about these matters. Where, where has the Lord led you to, to speak? Um, and what do you seek to communicate when you get that opportunity? <clears throat> and, and what have been some of the results that you've seen as a result of, of being invited to different places to speak? Yeah, I mean, I guess... Um... I've been invited to speak in very unusual places. Um, in 2007, I was asked to speak at the um, Conservatives' um, main party on the main stage of their political conference. And to be honest, before that, I pretty had no interest in politics whatsoever. And uh, and not that 
you know, XLP was Tory. We worked with every every um, you know different party. We worked with Labour, with the Lib Dems, and and with others as well. So it wasn't a political statement. But I did realise it was an opportunity to hopefully to communicate something of of kingdom values. Um, in that context, you have to be sensitive to the context you're speaking in. Um, I think they're all fed up with people that get asked the question about homelessness and then start preaching the gospel. You know, um, it doesn't help. And so I've always learned answer the question you're asked. Um, you know, be polite. And yep. uh, and so I did that. And. Uh, and I think the really interesting thing about that was, is that if policy is only decided by those in Westminster, we are going to get bad policy. Um, but if it actually could be a combination of listening to people that live on these estates, um, understand the issues um, that are coming from, you know, a really strong value base, then actually that's what social justice has got to be the heart of. And uh, so I always felt that it was an amazing opportunity to be able to communicate something of um, something of what, what the reality was for many young people growing up in the inner city. And, uh, and from that, you know, I mean, we literally, we went through a season where we had visits from, I mean, uh, from three or four prime ministers, um, either been to number 10 or, or they've come down to visit our projects. Um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu came to visit once, which was amazing. Uh, and, um, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge came twice in a year to find out what we were doing and why we were doing it. And people were like, you must have this massive media department. And I was like, I, I tell you, our media department, it's someone working part time. And they're like, you're kidding me. And I said, I, I think the secret is this is just get on and do what God's called you to do and let them follow you around. I think so many people seek profile, seek media, seek attention um, and spend lots of money trying to get it. And I was like, I really feel like to be prophetic is to just get on with doing what you, you're doing, you know. And um, Walter Brigham, who was an Old Testament scholar, said to be prophetic, you need to evoke grief at what is lost, but create amazement at what is possible. And if you read the Old Testament, that's what the prophets did. They call people back to God. They call people to repentance. But also, you know, particularly in Isaiah, they're painting this beautiful picture of a new heaven and new earth where all pain will be gone. And uh, and so in our comms, uh, and it's the same now in Kintsugi Hope, we're always trying to go, you know, let's, let's not ignore the pain that people are going through. People need to understand what the issues are. Um, equally, um, let's be people of hope as well. So in terms of all my sort of engagement in the media, um, I've always tried to do that. I mean, there was an interesting one just after the 2011 riots. Um, you know, young people were destroying their own community. Um, I was called into the BBC and I was on the BBC World Service, which has 70 million people watching it, which is like a number I can't even get my head around. <laughs> and uh, um, and. I remember them saying to me off camera, you know, this is the worst we've seen in this country. It's like, it's awful. Um, this is just a lost generation. And uh, and I sort of kept quiet at the time. And, and then when we went live on television, I, you know, I said, I refuse to believe this is a lost generation. Hope is a refusal to accept the situation as it is. And just that little phrase, I refuse to believe this is a lost generation. It just went crazy on Twitter and social media. And, you know, it just it went crazy. And everyone was going, starting to have a different conversation, you know. And I think that's what you want to do. You want to start people to have a different conversation around some of the issues. Um, so, yeah, it's been challenging. Um, working in the media, working um, in these areas is always challenging. But but I think it's a good place for Christians to be. Yeah, you sound as though you had a very wise wise approach to that and uh, i love what you said about just get on with what god called you to do mm. and uh yeah that, that's fantastic um now you travel widely abroad um i'm not sure how widely abroad with covid going on um but working with and on behalf of, of some of the poorest communities uh, around the world um i could ask you all sorts of questions about that um I'm going to ask you, what have you learned about God from your travels? I think if I could sum it up, 
um i think sometimes in the church we've gone we take god to places um you know to evangelize or whatever it is whatever your terminology is i realized that wherever i go god's already there and it's just spotting what he's doing and joining in um which makes it a lot less stressful <laughs> and i just amazed I, I just love it i love the fact that i can go to iraq um and get off the plane and meet someone that loves jesus who's been worshiping him in a cave um because that's what they only the place they're allowed to do it or i could go to um trench town in jamaica which is probably one of the most violent places i've been and meet with people who were ex-gang leaders um who've got to know god and and our open doors for me to be able to speak in some of the most incredible places and so i just realized that god is there god is working wherever people are marginalized or feel broken that's where god is i think brokenness reveals who jesus is and uh, and so i don't tend to go and speak at all the big conferences i get invited to some of them but i would much rather go and go to jamaica go to trench town go to a little village in ghana and uh, meet with the people there and and work with them in, in trying to support and, and work with, you know, I feel like charity that isn't based on long-term relationship has the potential to do more harm than good. So what I mean by that is, so for instance, when Haiti had its earthquake, we yeah. spent, sent so much money and um, clothes, blankets that we nearly put Haiti's clothing business out of business. Um, with the best intentions in the world, we weren't understanding what the situation was. And so I think, again, it goes down to listening, to understanding what the situation is. And then not just doing things for. I've always said, you know, we're not there to do things for. We are not doing stuff. We are doing things with and among, um, which is much more sort of uh, uh, giving people dignity who are, who are living and working in these communities. Um, they're incredible. And so, again, it's, it's getting alongside rather than we are not the saviour. Only Jesus is the saviour. We can't rescue anyone. And uh, and so we need to um, be those people that come alongside. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Now, in 2017, you set up Kintsugi Hope um, with a vision of starting a movement of uh, well-being groups. Um, what led you to start this charity uh, and what does the charity seek to do uh, and what is God doing through your work with this charity? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, Kintsugi came out of a time where I felt like everything in my life went wrong. Um, Dad was seriously ill with cancer. He was meant to be in hospital for a week. He was in for nine. Um, I got diagnosed with a very serious knee condition, which meant I had to have both my legs broken in three places. Uh, an external frame drilled into my bones, which would be on for six months to a year, twice. Um Oh and you know kids got sick i mean it literally i mean there was there's so many different things i won't go into them all and i remember um i just felt totally alone and felt totally broken and really anxious about everything um and really struggling with my mental health and i remember um the church can be a really lonely place if you struggle with your mental health and uh, it's because you sort of feel like, you know, everyone says you've got to have more faith. You've got to pray more, read the Bible more, do this more um, as if you'd never thought of any of those ideas. <laughs> and uh, and so I was just really broken. And the image of Kintsugi just meant so much to me. And, you know, that what happens is if you break a pot, we will mend it with super glue. And the whole idea of superglue is you hide the cracks, you pretend it's not broken, um, you pretend it's all okay, and you put it back on your shelf. What they do in Kintsugi is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. So arguably the object becomes more beautiful for being broken. Um, it certainly becomes more unique. Oh. And uh, there isn't a bowl like uh, like this on planet Earth. And I think it's the same for people, that people are unique. And, you know, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4, where he talks about uh, treasure in jars of clay. And actually the jars of clay in what he's talking about uh, were designed to crack. They were designed to be, you know, the thinnest material that we're designed in some way to be quite fragile. So the love of God can get through. And so 
what we did is um, I really felt God was telling me to leave XLP. Um, and that was quite a wrench because I'd been there for 21 years and I was I the bet. founder. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's huge in itself, really, to, to walk away yeah. from something that's been your baby for all those years. Yeah, yeah, blood, sweat and tears. And, and uh, so, um, but really... I didn't want to start a charity. I I was like, God, I'll do anything for you apart from run another charity because I never want to fundraise ever again in my life. And and I really felt God say, don't think charity, think movement. And I was like, what does that mean? And so I studied movements for a year. I looked at Park Run where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people um, run in parks before COVID anyway, across our country. Um, Different cultures, different abilities, different ages. You belong, but you don't have to fit in. Um, there was a thing called Rock Choir where choirs start all over the country. They hire Wembley Arena now from all these different choirs coming together. And again, different abilities, different cultures, different uh, uh, ages, different genders. You belong, but you don't have to fit in. Um, I looked at Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just gone around the world, um, built on biblical principles. Um, you know, Weight Watchers, Slimming World, all these things that happen in the community. And there was just something really beautiful about these movements that had started in the grassroots. And so what me and my wife did, Dime, we wrote a 12-week well-being program, um, looking at all issues to do with well-being, honesty, depression, anxiety, shame, stigma, forgiveness, uh, resilience, and, and a few others. And we wrote it in learning styles because we appreciate not everyone learns the same. And then what we did is we trained churches to run this in their communities. And uh, and it's just been incredible. Um, you know, before the pandemic, we were working with about 40 churches. So there were hundreds of people doing the wellbeing groups. Again, no massive marketing budget, no massive publicity. And uh, just people coming in communities, um, people doing it in life groups. They were doing it in pubs, coffee shops, schools, prisons, um, doing it with women who are involved in prostitution, doing it as a church home group, I guess. All sorts of different contexts. And then since the pandemic, um, the two biggest issues have been mental health and social isolation, which is why we set the whole thing up. Um, and so now um, we've trained about 900 leaders to run Kintsugi Wellbeing Groups, about 250 churches uh, running it in all sorts of places. Um, we're seeing people come to faith. We're seeing people who feel um, full of shame because of the stuff that they've been through. Um, we had one lady recently who's lost her kids to foster care. Um, and that's quite hard because the judges basically said you're not fit to be a mum and she sat for the first four weeks on Zoom with the lights off so you could just uh, see her face I can't see her face you just see the silhouette because um, she felt so ashamed and week four is on shame which I think is a big topic and uh, week five she had the lights on um, and you could see her again and I think that's what Jesus does and I think that he you know it's for Jesus he always dealt with people's shame before their guilt Zacchaeus, classic example. He dealt with his shame before his guilt. You know, the woman with the blood disorder. I mean, it goes on, the woman caught in adultery. It's like he he dealt with that sense of them feeling worthless because shame is like feeling, is different to guilt. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I feel like I am wrong. And it's much more linked with who you think you are. And so we've just seen lots of people stepping out of shame. And uh, so there's thousands of people now in Kintsugi groups, which is incredible. Um, so it's keeping us very busy. <laughs> it sounds as though the Lord led you to set that up just in a perfect time for for uh, the pandemic. I mean, you know, it's it's yeah. to be a, to be a real lifeline, I'm sure, to many many people. To be honest, Nigel, I feel like um, I keep saying to people, I'm so glad we set it up when we did because I hear churches now going, we quickly need to buy ourselves a well-being group, you know, and I'm like, well. You know, we did this two years ago before the pandemic hit. We we did a year of piloting, of research, of study. Um, we you know piloted it in 11 places. So when it did hit, we were literally ready to go. Um, we could train people online. We could equip yeah. the church. And, uh, yeah, so I think it was just it was just a God thing. You know, I couldn't dreamt it would grow so quickly. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just been amazing. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Fantastic just brilliant now you've written a number of books yeah um, <laughs> uh what have you seen the lord do in and through what you have written and do you have a favorite 
Oh, I oh, I don't have a favourite, no. Um, I think they all do have different aims, different objectives. The only reason to write a book is to try and encourage people and make a difference. And so for me, it's never been about sales. I mean, they sell well, but like it's the emails you get, you know, it's the emails that you get on a weekly basis of just saying thank you. Um, I was having suicidal thoughts and I was in the lowest of the low and I read the book and I, I found hope uh, and I found faith. Um, I had a gentleman contact me. Um, I was speaking at a church and he hadn't been in church for I think about 18 months because um, every time he went, walked into a church building, he had a panic attack. And he's like, I read your book and I know you're speaking, so I'm coming tonight. And I, I nearly had a panic attack worrying about him having a panic attack. <laughs> and, uh, but just beautiful stories. Um, just people are amazing. People are incredible. What people have been through and, uh, and how they keep their faith. And I think probably what people appreciate about my books is they're very honest and very vulnerable. Um, Brené Brown famously says that the best definition of courage is vulnerability. And if you think about who someone is vulnerable, you don't go, oh, they're weak. You think that's quite courageous, to be honest. And uh, the Latin word for courage is cur. It means to speak your mind with your heart. Mm. And, and I think that actually we need to have much more authenticity and, uh, we need to be much more real and honest. And yeah, so so the newest book, um, Bouncing Forwards, is very much looking at where we're at now. Um, I, I said, again, it's just a God thing. I said in January last year before the pandemic hit that I wanted to write a book on resilience because resilience, by definition, is thriving in adversity. Um, so you can imagine how I felt thinking I'm going to write a book about thriving in adversity. Then in March, COVID hit um and then the unjust murder of George Floyd and 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 you know it just kept coming didn't it and uh and so this has been looking at the fact that a lot of people describe resilience as bouncing back you'll hear it on the news at the moment will the economy bounce back yes. will the church bounce back will anyone come back <laughs> yeah. um and actually newer research says it's not about bouncing back it's about bouncing forwards it's about saying that we've been changed our values have been challenged over the last year why would you want to compare yourself to your pre-trauma self, to yourself that's been through less? Um, we've learned stuff for good and for bad. And actually, resilience, maybe it's more about bouncing forwards. And, uh, and so the new book particularly looks at how do we build our resilience levels and how, you know, what decreases them as well. So it was a fascinating write. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm pleased to finally do that. You, you said, you said, early in the, you said, you know, you weren't, sort of necessarily top of the class when you were at school and all that stuff and, yeah. yet, and yet you've written these books I mean that's that's um you know that's quite a feat isn't it to write a book yeah it's not easy um I do get some help um from a professional writer but all the content's mine and uh, and stuff so it's um yeah it's not an easy process but it's, it's a fascinating process and um, particularly this one I was really keen to look at um, look at resilience from such different angles. So I looked at obviously what theologians were saying, um, psychology, um, business, activism, poetry, um, sports, even, um, and just trying to thread it together. Um, it's been a, it's been it's been fascinating. Yeah, brilliant. Now you mentioned you've had a number of challenges yourself over the years. Um, mental health, you said physical. Um, what motivates you? to keep going and, and also what would you say to someone as i'm sure you're saying to lots of people all the time through your through kintsugi hope um going through similar circumstances um those really really tough times what so what motivates you to keep going and what would you say to someone who may be listening to this who's going through those difficult times yeah i think what motivates me to keep going is simply that i want people to be able to step out of shame I want to communicate and demonstrate the love of Jesus. And I think you step out of shame by owning your story. And when I see people do that and I see them start to flourish, that's a very beautiful thing. I think I'd say to people three things if you're going through a hard time. Um, the government likes it sort of, you know, free slogans, don't it, during the coronavirus and uh, <laughs> yeah. stay alert. And, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. So my three things would be um, go gently, 
I think that um, I've been saying to people, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, which is a famous quote. And I think that so often people are, you know, coming out of a pandemic. Terry Waite, who I had the privilege of interviewing recently, um, who was a hostage, um, right. taken hostage in Lebanon. He didn't literally, he was blindfolded for five years. It, you know, he, he uses the example of when you go deep sea diving, um, you have to come up slowly. Otherwise, you know, you'll die. Um, and go gently, go gently with yourself, go gently with your emotions, you know, go gently with others. Secondly, be kind. Um, and that's about kindness is actually probably the best drug there is. It's the best thing that you can do. Um, it's, it's, there's so much scientific research now, actually. Um, I think only God can design something which is good for you and good for others uh, as the double whammy. And, uh, and I think actually kindness to yourself is sometimes a lot harder. And so I always say, you know, we are our own biggest critics, right? You sort of listen to something you've done or read something you've written and you criticize yourself probably harsher than anyone else would criticize you. Um, so it's acting self-kindness and self-kindness is talking to yourself the way that you would talk to your best friend. You probably wouldn't treat your best friend the way that you treat yourself. Um, so think about the way you're talking to yourself and, and then thirdly, um, stay connected. We're built for community. We're built to be together. Um, that was God's design. And, uh, and I think that loneliness is one of the biggest killers of our time. And, uh, and so we've got to stay connected. We've got to stay accountable. We've got to stay in those uh, key relationships. Go gently, be kind, stay connected. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'd like to move on and talk about... Um, uh, the Bible, the Word of God, Scripture. Um, you've mentioned a few verses already. Um, uh, this this podcast is called The Bible and Me. Um, so, uh, for, uh, why is the Word of God important to you, assuming it is important to you? Uh, what is the reason that it is important to you? Um, I think one of the most beautiful descriptions of the Bible um, is the story we find ourselves in. I think it, it is our story. It's God's story. And um, and I think that that is that is, you know, is that that we're in it. You know, we're in this story that um, that from the beginning of time where God invaded the world and and uh, and communicated his love through Jesus. And uh, and so it's you know, it's it's life changing. It's it's life giving. And um Sometimes I think it's hard to understand. Um, sometimes there's bits where you think, oh, my goodness, what is that all about? And so actually sometimes taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. I think there's a danger with the Bible that we play a little bit of pick and mix. You know, you get your favorite suite. It's a bit like get your favorite verse. Um, I'm going to ask you that in a minute. <laughs> well, when people do that, often they take verses out of context. Yes. And, and it's really dangerous. It's been really dangerous for people with mental health where people have taken verses out of context, yeah. um, prayed them over the people and left them feeling really guilty. And, and I, so, I, so I love looking at the big narrative of scripture um, and the story of scripture and, and how God met people. Um, and uh, so, and then a lot of my books, I will, you know, I do a deep dive into a particular story and uh, that, and, and then realize that actually I thought I understood this story but now it's even more incredible than I thought it was, <laughs> you know, when I've really tried to grapple with scripture and pray and, and ask the Holy Spirit what he's saying. That is brilliant. I mean, that, that's one of the things that um, what you're saying there chimes just so well with what we're seeking to do, actually, as a charity um, to, to look at it. You know, we want the big sweep, but the, but we also want to train people how to how to dig the truth out for themselves. And context is one of the things that we really major on. Actually, mm. uh, we we give an example, uh, and I could use it on you. I say, okay, um, Patrick, give me give me a meaning or some of the meanings of the word sharp. Yeah, and how would you answer that? Sharp um, or pointed, yeah. um, that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, you can have a sharp taste, yeah, a, a musical note on a piano. Um, yeah. Somebody could be really sharp-witted, sharp mind. There could be sharp yeah. bend on a road, uh, a camera focus, sharp, sharp focus. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But if you just say the word sharp, 
then yeah. then what does sharp mean? And so so context is is absolutely vital. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, those are some of the things that we teach um, uh, with the ministry. Um, now, do you have? Is there a character in the Bible or a book of the Bible that you sort of really love, particularly? Um. Yeah, I mean, ugh, where to start? I, I mean, I preach on Elijah a lot. Um, but recently, I've been thinking, in terms of the context we're in coming out of the pandemic, uh, I've been thinking a lot about Jeremiah. And uh, and particularly, again, in Bouncing Forwards, I write a lot about Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I actually think that is probably the most taken out of context verse in the whole of the Bible. Yeah. You know, it's the fridge magnet, it's the T-shirt. And uh, and I think what I find incredible about that particular verse, that in Jeremiah 28, um, we know that the people of God are in exile. They're orphaned, they're vulnerable, they've been taken to Babylon. They're in a place where they feel um, orphaned, vulnerable, lonely. And actually, the book of Lamentations describes some of the sadness that the people in exile felt. And and what you have is in Jeremiah 28, you have the prophet Hananiah coming along going, you know what, guys, this is going to be over in two years time. And and that's almost like quite a nice prophecy to hear, I guess, you know, that you just got to hang on in there for two more years and it will be OK. And then the prophet Jeremiah comes along and he basically has to say, guys, it's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years which is a bit more of a harder prophecy to hear. Um, but here's the key. This time is not to be wasted. Um, you need to plant gardens. You need to settle down. You need to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. And and the key is, in that context of being in exile for 70 years, I have plans to prosper you and to give you future and to give you a hope. And the you in that is you plural. It doesn't mean you individual. It doesn't mean your career, your university place, your this. It was written to a community um, and uh, in a community in exile. And and I think that's amazing. And I think that sense of actually, you know, in the situation that we're in at the moment is actually there's some people going, oh, it'll be all okay. You know, we'll be out of this soon. But actually, maybe it's going to be tough for a while. But actually, within that tough place that God meets us. Um, it was really interesting, Nigel. I got to interview um, Eva Shalos, who is Anne Frank's stepsister, um, about her time in Auschwitz. And uh, and they basically said to me, and it's the same thing in POW camps, the people that die the earliest in those situations are the optimists. The optimists go, I'll be out by January. I'll be out by um, Easter. Um, January and Easter come and go and they're still there and they almost die of a broken heart and what they said is this he said the people that did the best were those that accepted the situation adapted to it but never lost hope they're the ones that got through and I sort of feel like when you look at Jeremiah that's partly what he's saying here he's saying accept the situation you're going to be here for a long time sorry about that um Adapt to it, you know, pray for the peace of the prosperity of the city, but never lose hope. Wonderful. And they're the ones that got through. And uh, and I think that's a, for our situation at the moment. I think that's a real, really important message. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And those of you that are listening that want to do a detailed study in Jeremiah, contact us because we've got a brilliant study on Jeremiah. <laughs> um, what is next for you? What is that? And how can we be praying for you? Because, you know, clearly the Lord is using you in, in, in wonderful ways and, and, and the things that you're pioneering. Um, yeah. How can we be praying for you? What, what's 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 next? Um, I think I think like, you know, lots of wisdom. I think you always need loads of wisdom. And uh, um, I feel like for a time such as this, really, I felt like God really called Kintsugi at the right time for a time such as this. And that is obviously being able to minister to lots of people. And and, and I, my prayer is that God will just blow it by spirit across the country. Um, we've already got thousands of people in Kintsugi groups. You know, projectory is there'll be tens and 20, 30,000 people in the next sort of four years if it carries on the same way. So 
you know, I've often said I would love to see a move of God, um, but if it comes in America somewhere in a big warehouse um, with a big meeting and, you know, Christian TV come and beam it around the world and we call it revival, I think I might quit. Um, <laughs> but if I could, you know, if we could see a move of God in prisons and brothels and coffee shops and pubs and schools, prisons, people's homes, through their computers, you know, not led by the charismatic, maybe led by the fragile and the vulnerable and the humble. Um, I would love to see a movement like that start. So I think that's our biggest prayer, really, is to see what God's doing and join in. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, uh, Patrick, um, it's been a real privilege to share this time with you today. Um, and uh, yeah, just... Um, amazing it started early didn't it in your life it it, it started early and and god clearly had his had his finger on you from from a young age i'm reminded of daniel <laughs> you know and uh daniel standing firm being taken into exile himself wasn't he in, in a difficult situation uh, but he remained faithful to god throughout his long life and um we we'd just been finishing a study on Daniel, and you know the, the amazing thing: God God saw Daniel's heart to such a degree that God communicated to Daniel not only what uh, was going to happen in the next two three hundred years, but what was going to happen at the end of the age. Mm. Mm. That's how much he trusted Daniel. That's how much he saw his heart. Mm. And and I get a sense in in talking with you that God saw your heart from a young age. And you were willing to uh, submit to what God wanted you to do. And and just you're all in, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think I think there, are, there may be lots of folks who are sort of half hearted, maybe in their walk with the Lord. And, and he wants all of us, doesn't he? He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants us. He wants us totally committed. And and I think if he sees someone that is totally committed, he can come alongside them and say, right, right. You know, because you're committed and it is going to be tough, um, you're you're going to get through this. Um, and um, uh, another little story that we were doing is Joseph recently studying the story of Joseph. And of course, you know, you know that well. And uh, just the phrase that struck me as we were going through that study, and it was the phrase, uh, "The Lord was with Joseph," and that that's repeated. It's repeated, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. And so it's, it's that, I guess, that understanding that whatever you're going through, um, if you know the Lord is with you, mm. then, then things are possible, all things are possible. Mm. So uh, very grateful to you for being willing to come on the podcast. Uh, uh, and I really pray that God uses it in a wonderful way. Uh, maybe the lots more wellbeing groups uh, start as a result. So yes. thank you. No problem.